Turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 28 through 44. So John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. And as you turn there, let us ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. O Lord our God, we thank You for Your Word, for You have given it to us. You have inspired the apostles and prophets and those whom wrote it. We know that through them, Your Holy Spirit spoke. And in these latter days, we know that You have spoken through Your Son. That all other ways of You revealing Yourself have now ceased. This is Your final Word to us. The Word of God. We pray, Lord, that as we hear Your Word read and preached, that it would bear much fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away, or they took away the stone And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say Amen. Where do you place your hope when you suffer? We know this passage all too well. We know as we're reading this passage that Lazarus is going to be resurrected from the dead. But Mary and Martha, and we should add Lazarus up until the point of his death, 
didn't really know that he was going to be resurrected from the dead. They didn't know what was going to happen. So where do we, like them, place our hope when we suffer? I wonder if we can place our hope in the short-term nature of suffering, knowing that it won't last too long. Well, that won't work because some people suffer an entire lifetime with certain things. Can you place your hope in the expectation that suffering won't end your life? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but some suffering will end your life. So we can't place our hope there. Well, can you place your hope when you suffer in hospitals and doctors and medicines? And we have many people here who work in the medical field. They do a wonderful work of God's grace through medicine and hospitals and much of that can help us mitigate our suffering, but it can't eradicate suffering completely. It can't keep suffering from coming into our lives. I wonder if we can place our hope in the community of other people when we suffer. It certainly is a blessing when we suffer to have fellowship with other Christians and family members, to have a church family come alongside you when you suffer, but... We can't always depend on that. People can fail us. People don't always understand the extent and the depths of our own personal suffering. I wonder if we can place our hope in our own intellect and ability to change our plight of suffering. Well, there are many things we can and should do that God has given us in His grace to affect a change in our suffering, but how many of you know sometimes some suffering is absolutely beyond our control and we are helpless to change any of it? Where do you place your hope when you suffer? You need to be asking yourself that question. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are suffering. Lazarus has fallen ill. He is taken sick, and even though Jesus had given them a promise that this sickness does not end in death, but that the glory of God might be revealed, Lazarus succumbed to his illness, and he died. And Martha and Mary are overcome with sadness and grief and sorrow. And despite what is likely their wealth and prestige and affluence in their community, and despite their loving relationship with Jesus, all of which was true for this family, it didn't keep them from suffering heartbreak and sorrow and grief. Well, where did Mary and Martha and Lazarus place their hope in their suffering? It's the same place that all of us should place our hope. Isn't that right? Jesus has revealed Himself in this chapter as the resurrection and the life. That's where we place our hope, when we suffer. When we suffer, when you suffer, when I suffer, place your hope in the resurrection and the life. That's the only hope that we can truly have when we suffer. Well, I want to ask this question, why we should do that? This passage answers that 
question. Why should we place our hope in Jesus, the resurrection, and the life when we suffer? I want you to see with me, first of all, I want you to know from this passage that's so clearly taught, you can't miss it in this portion of Scripture, you should place your hope in the resurrection and the life when you suffer because your Savior loves you and is grieved by your suffering. You need the assurance of that when you suffer. That you have a Savior that when you suffer, that your suffering does not negate His love for you and that even in your suffering, He's grieved by your suffering. You notice here this interaction between Jesus and Mary. Jesus has already talked to Martha. Martha has gone back to the house and she has let her sister know that Jesus is asking for her. And so Mary rises quickly to go and meet Jesus. And the group of Jews that have come from Jerusalem to mourn with this family, they presume that Mary is going to Lazarus' tomb to weep. And so they get up and they follow her, making an effort to console her. It was Jewish custom for a family to provide at a minimum some, a couple of professional mourners and a couple of people to play instruments during the portion of mourning. And as we read here in John chapter 11, there is, you get the sense that there's this large crowd of people, which is a testimony to the wealth and the influence of this family. And so Mary goes to meet Jesus with what is likely a large delegation of Jews weeping and mourning and playing instrumentation as they walk along the way to what they presume to be the tomb sobbing and crying out in loud tears. You can only just imagine what a, a commotion this was and what a sight it was to see. In verse 32, we read that when Mary finally comes to see Jesus, when she finally sees Jesus, she falls down at His feet. And look at what she says to Jesus, which will sound familiar to all of us. It's the same words in essence that Martha said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They had sent word to Jesus, letting Him know that Lazarus, the one that Jesus loved, had fallen ill. And, and Jesus had sent back that word. And, and they had full trust and faith that were Jesus there during Lazarus' time of struggling with his illness, that Jesus would have been able to stretch forth His hand and touch Lazarus and heal him. But now the moment has passed. It's too late, they assume. Jesus is not obtuse to her suffering, and to her sorrow, and to her grief. In fact, look with me at verse 33, that when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. You probably have a little footnote in your Bible there. Look down at that. Next to the words, deeply moved, it probably says, or was, what? Indignant. You see that there? This is probably a better translation of this word. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he says that this word 
that the translators are using deeply moved. In extra biblical Greek, it's the same word for essentially an angry horse when it stomps its feet. You get this sense here of indignation. Right? That's the word that's being used. Jesus? Indignant about this? Why is Jesus indignant about what is happening here? It's the same word used again in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved, came again to the tomb. Same word in Greek. Jesus is indignant about this. Well, what is Jesus indignant about? Well, we don't know for certain what he's indignant about. Perhaps Jesus is indignant with those who are mourning. Perhaps their mourning has moved from what is a reasonable uh, way to mourn to a, a place of total despair and a loss of all hope. Perhaps Jesus was indignant about what sin has brought into the world. God didn't create the world with death. That's a result of sin. And so perhaps Jesus is indignant about the plight of humanity because of sin. That because of sin, we suffer, we get sick, and people die. And that death brings sorrow and grief and hurt into people's lives. Perhaps Jesus is indignant about both. Maybe these are not mutually exclusive to one another. Perhaps Jesus sees all of those who are in grief and in sorrow and understanding the depth and the gravity of what sin has caused, that it has filled people's hearts with such a despair that death is this hellish reminder of what sin has caused and brought into the world. But Jesus was not only indignant either, was He? Jesus was also demonstrating His love for this family. You see that He is indignant in His spirit and greatly troubled. This touched Jesus' soul, what's happening here. Jesus is impacted by this. We even see in verse 35 that famous short verse in all of Scripture, the shortest verse in all of Scripture, verse 35, that Jesus did what when He came to the grave of Lazarus? What did Jesus do? Jesus wept. Jesus is not... Jesus doesn't have some sort of cognitive dissonance with what's happening right now. He's, he's not sort of unmoved. and he's, he's not giving Mary and Martha and these Jewish mourners empty platitudes of, hey, buck up, it'll be okay. Jesus is, is grieved by what's happening Himself. And we need to know this, don't we? when we go through sorrow and suffering ourselves, that Jesus is grieved by that suffering because that suffering is a result of sin. And our Savior loves us even when we suffer. If you have kids, you've all had one of those moments when your child comes running into the house, screaming bloody murder, dripping blood down their leg, not the only parent that's happened to. And you quickly scoop up that child, consoling that child, putting them on the, the table, and you begin to quickly dress the wound and clean that wound and bandage that wound. And 
You always ask that child, what's the question that you always ask the child? What do you ask? Oh, moms, you know especially. Well, what happened? And what does the child say? Well, they proceed to give you a, a whole list of syllables that are hardly discernible whatsoever. They're grieved, they're in tears, and they're crying, and you can't hardly understand a word that they're saying and, until finally you make out that, oh, well, Bobby, the boy next door in the street, when we were playing, and, and I was riding my bike, and, and then we were jumping on the trampoline, and, and then I fell, and he pushed me down. And I scraped my knee. And it's falling off, Dad. Help. A little bit of a father moment that kicks in here. Not only am I sorrowful for my child whom I love, but filled with a little bit of indignation towards Bobby next, next door. want to have a conversation with him. The same is true for us when we suffer. When we're grieved by the sorrow of death, our Savior is grieved too that sin has brought death into the world. When we suffer sickness, our Savior who loves us is grieved that the problem of sin has brought sickness into the world. When we experience the suffering of abandonment by family or a friend or abuse, our Savior who loves us is, is grieved by that sorrow, by that abandonment that we're going through, that sin has so impacted relationships in this world that they are fractured and broken. When we experience mistreatment by a church or a church leader. Our Savior who loves us is grieved that the bride that He purchased with His own blood is not perfectly holy yet. You might be wondering if Jesus can really and truly be grieved by your pain and by your suffering. And the answer is yes. It's in the Incarnation that this question is answered. For if Jesus never came to earth, He would never truly understand our plight in life, would He? But Jesus came in the flesh. He came near to us. He condescended down to us. He humbled Himself, taking the form of a servant. He became like us in every respect, Hebrews 2 says. Philippians 2 tells us that even though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself and became a servant. Galatians tells us that when the fullness of time come, had come, that God sent forth his Son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus came close to our suffering, didn't he? And that's what we see here in John 11. Jesus is close to the suffering of this family. And He's close to us when we suffer. When you suffer, place your hope in the resurrection and the life. Jesus is close to you. He loves you. And He's grieved by your sorrow when you suffer. But there's a second reason here I want you to see in this passage why you should place your hope in the resurrection and the life. And the second answer is this. Because He displays God's glory through suffering. We need to know that too. Not only does He love us and is grieved by our suffering, but our, our suffering does not negate God's ability to display His glory in our lives. We all know 
first question of the catechism, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And even though we have fallen and this world has fallen, we're still able to glorify God with our lives. And even our suffering is able to glorify God. Isn't that what Jesus promised to Mary and Martha and Lazarus earlier in this chapter? That the sickness did not lead to death, but that the glory of God might be revealed. Jesus says that again here in this passage of Scripture. As He goes and moves closer to the tomb of Lazarus, finally arriving there in verse 38, we see it's a cave and there's a stone that's been laid against this cave and Jesus commands for the stone to be taken away. And, and Mary, uh, Martha, it's almost comical what she says here, isn't it? She says, teacher, it's, it's been four days. Don't ask them to remove the stone because the moment you do that, we're all going to get a whiff of a body that has begun to decompose. In Jewish mysticism, they believe that for three days after death, the soul of a person hovered over the body, waiting to see if the soul could be reunited with the body. But on the fourth day, when the soul saw that the body had begun to decompose, the soul would depart. Jesus, knowing His culture and His context, intentionally waits until the fourth day. He wants to make sure that when He resurrects Lazarus from the dead, He's not only partially dead, He's completely dead. And so that's what He's doing. You'll notice the reference to the Princess Bride. If you haven't seen the movie, you can all talk to me about it afterward. But Jesus has come to the tomb when in Jewish minds, Lazarus is completely dead. The soul's departed. The body has begun to decompose. And Jesus tells Martha in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Everyone wants to display God's glory in their lives, but no one wants to suffer for it. It's like the old saying, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. Think about all of God's glory that is displayed in our suffering as we see throughout Scripture. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh and how he suffered with the thorn in the flesh. And were it not for Paul's suffering of the thorn in the flesh, we would not have learned that God's grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Think about Onesimus, the bondservant, who likely suffered as a bondservant of Philemon. Think about Philemon, who suffered the theft of his property. And were it not for the suffering of these two men, we would not have learned that the gospel reconciles even bondservants to masters, making them, in the words of Paul, beloved brothers. Think about the suffering of Ruth and Naomi, who suffered the death of their husbands, and Naomi, the death of her sons, and Ruth and Naomi, who suffered poverty, and Ruth and Naomi, who suffered even famine. And were it not for their suffering, we would not know that we have a kinsman redeemer who purchases, purchases us back from sin and suffering. Think about the suffering of Job who suffered the loss of, of family and wealth and, and everything seemingly in, in one moment. 
in one night, in a short time, and Job is overcome with grief. But were it not for Job's suffering, would we, we would not know, as he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Think about the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, likely there as a prisoner. He says that he was there on account of his preaching the Gospel. So he is suffering because he's a Christian who is preaching the Gospel. And there he is on the island of Patmos, suffering, and were it not for his suffering, would not have his marvelous vision. Where he saw Jesus seated upon his throne, the first and the last and the living one who has the keys of death in Hades. And think about Lazarus. Were it not for the suffering of Lazarus, we would not know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. You see, our suffering isn't arbitrary. Sometimes it feels like it's arbitrary. Sometimes we feel like our suffering is useless. Sometimes we feel like our suffering is like a, a, a cruel child uh, with a magnifying glass in summer, burning ants. And it feels that way when we suffer. God is just trying to see how much He can burn us and suffer, make us suffer and inflict pain. None of our suffering is meaningless. None of our suffering is pointless. God is able to display His glory through our suffering for His own glory, isn't He? And you say, well, how can that be true? Well, not only do we see that testimony in Scripture time and time again, we have to look no further than Jesus. For Jesus Himself, who perfectly kept God's law, perfectly glorified God, and every thought, word, and deed goes to the cross and displays God's glory. Even the division of the Gospel of John, we're in the book of signs, but this is the last sign of Jesus. And after chapter 12, we're going to move into what commentators call the book of glory, where the cross is the display of God's glory. It may not always feel like we can glorify God in our suffering, but think about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been glorified because He's suffered for the sake of the Lord. Let me just encourage you that whatever it is that you have suffered or are currently suffering, and so many of you have shared your stories with me, and I know that you suffer. Your suffering is not meaningless in the hands of God. He's able to display His glory even in your suffering. So we've seen two reasons here why we should place our hope in the resurrection and the life. Because our Savior, He loves us. He's grieved by our suffering. And number two, He's able to display God's glory through our suffering. And lastly, and this is the most important one, you can't miss this, He's the great resurrector of the suffering on the last day. Look with me at the miracle here. Verse 41 they took the stone away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he prays. What does he pray? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always 
hear me. Jesus is not praying for His own benefit here. Jesus is in perfect communion with the Father. And He knows that the Father is hearing Him. He doesn't have to pray out loud in order to know that God hears Him. But He's praying out loud for the benefit of others. Look here at this passage. What does He say? But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So the twofold purpose. Jesus prays aloud, and what he's about to do, he says aloud, number one, so that everyone will know that when Jesus prays, the Father hears him. It's going to be so important when we get to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, when Jesus prays for the church and for you and for me. We need to know that the Father hears Jesus' prayer and What better evidence to know that the Father hears His prayer than to call the dead man back to life? And not only that, but the purpose of this is so that all will believe what? That the Father has sent the Son. And so this is an evidence to that. Verse 43, when He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. All the old preachers say this, and and if I don't say this, I've done a terrible job preaching this sermon. You know why Jesus said, Lazarus, come out? If He had just said, come out, all the graves would have opened up. And all the dead would have been resurrected at one time. Not only all the old preachers say that, even D.A. Carson in his commentary says that. I'm in good company here. But it's true, isn't it? Jesus who knows his sheep by name and calls them to himself, calls this sheep by name. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus does. He came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a sight that must have seen. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to witness this? It would have been incredible to stand there and hear Jesus call Lazarus to come out of that grave and to see this man walking out of this cave who was once dead, wrapped in all his grave clothes. This is the sixth and final sign in the Gospel of John. All these signs have been evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the turning the water into wine, healing the official son, healing the man born blind, Six signs. This is, this is the pinnacle of them all. This is the most significant of them all. And in this way, the sign is not about Lazarus. The sign is about Jesus. It points away from itself and points to Jesus in three ways. Number one, this was a sign of Jesus' own resurrection to come. Isn't it? You can't help but to notice The similarities here between Lazarus and Jesus. There's the mention of a cave. And later on in the Gospel of John, we're going to read that Jesus was buried in a cave. We're going to read here, um, not only was Lazarus' tomb covered with a stone, but who else is going to have a tomb covered with a stone that gets rolled away? Jesus too. We see here even the mention of the grave clothes, right? And here's the dissimilarity between the two. Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes. He doesn't have a glorified body yet. 
Jesus leaves his grave clothes there in the tomb and comes out of the grave with his glorified body. So Jesus here is prefiguring his own resurrection, and it wouldn't be a far leap for those who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus to believe that Jesus resurrected too, for they saw Jesus already resurrect someone. That makes sense? Secondly, this was a sign not only to Jesus' own resurrection, but to the spiritual resurrection that Jesus brings. Paul or uh, John loves contrast, darkness and light, death and life. And here we see a contrast, a dead man brought to life. It's a testimony of our own spiritual life. We are born into sin. We are born spiritually dead. We're as dead as Lazarus in the grave. And when Jesus calls us by name, we're brought from death to life. But not only is it a sign of Jesus' own resurrection and the resurrection of our spiritual life, it's a sign of what? I bet you can guess. The resurrection of the dead on the last day. Jesus has already said this in John chapter 5. Don't marvel at this. For one day, the Son of Man will speak with His mouth. All, all those who are in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man. And everyone will come out of the grave some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. And in this way, this raising of Lazarus from the dead is a sign not only of Jesus' resurrection, not only of our spiritual resurrection, but of the final hope that we have of being resurrected from the dead. You see, all these three are inseparably connected with each other. You can't have the resurrection from the dead if you don't have the resurrection of the Spirit. And you can't have the resurrection from the dead and of the Spirit unless you have the resurrection of Jesus. Doesn't Paul say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Doesn't Paul say that Jesus was raised from the dead? It's a historical fact for the Apostle Paul. And he even says that Jesus, after He resurrected, appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and then to the apostles and then to 500 others. And Paul even says, some of those people are still alive. What was he saying? Well, if you doubt, if you doubt this testimony, go find some of those people Jesus appeared to who saw Him. That's what Paul's saying. It's a historical fact for Paul that Jesus, on the third day, got up out of that grave. And because Jesus got up out of that grave, those who are in the grave don't remain in the grave. They'll be resurrected out of that grave on the last day. They'll be called to come forth just as Lazarus was called to come forth. And because we know Jesus was resurrected out of the grave and because we have a hope of our own resurrection, we know that we are not still dead in our sins and in our trespasses. You see, if our greatest need in life was the end of all our suffering, God would have provided that for us in this life. If our greatest need was health and food and finances and political peace, Jesus would have done all that in His coming. That's not what Jesus brings. That's not what Jesus brought in His incarnation. What was it? Jesus came 
to provide our greatest need. Deliverance from sin. Our greatest need is not the deliverance from suffering. Our greatest need is the deliverance from our sin and restored fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. I don't have another hope to offer you in your suffering. I can't tell you when your suffering will end in this life. It may never end. But it can only last a lifetime. And one day, you and I will receive a glorified body and there will be no more suffering because there will be no more sin. And all of God's promises will be completed and fulfilled in our life. So when you suffer, place your hope in the resurrection and the life. Place your hope there. Because He's the great resurrector of those who suffer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your promise. We thank You for the eternal hope that we have that when we die, that we will be with You. That to live is to Christ and to die is gain. Lord, we pray that You would fill our hearts with an eternal hope when we suffer. Draw our attention towards You and help us to glorify You in our suffering. Remind us that You are near to the brokenhearted and that You have redeemed us from the curse of death. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.